2: I'm Jason Flom. Through this podcast, I aim to highlight how frequently our criminal legal system shatters the lives of innocent people. Whether junk science is introduced at trial, police, or prosecutorial misconduct, or simply a misidentification, each story is devastating on its own. But when we zoom out and take in the sheer breadth of the issue, we can see a pattern forming across our entire system. Who better to take us on that journey than the brilliant journalists and writers who regularly cover these stories.
3: Kathleen Peterson was found by her husband, Michael Peterson, bleeding and struggling to breathe at the bottom of a staircase. It was the middle of the night on December 9th, 2001. Michael called 911 and held her as she lay dying. When emergency services arrived, there was blood all over the walls, the floor, and on Michael's clothing, which led Durham police detective Art Holland to quickly assume this was a murder. Michael became a suspect in Kathleen's death, and Durham police pursued this theory to the exclusion of all other evidence. After a highly publicized trial, Peterson was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. His attorney, David Rudolph, was able to overturn the conviction eight years later and Michael was released. After waiting for a new trial for five years and after turning 70 years old, Michael was tired of fighting. He decided to take an Alford plea, a plea where the defendant maintains his innocence but admits that the evidence presented could result in a jury finding him guilty. This is probably a case you've heard about, and might already have an opinion on. There is a popular Netflix documentary called The Staircase, and this year, HBO produced a miniseries of the same name. But despite all that coverage and drama, Michael Peterson has refused to speak to the media about the case until recently. And that's why we wanted to speak with him today, to give him the opportunity to tell his side. It's an important story that highlights so many of the problems with the American criminal justice system. This is Wrongful Conviction.
4: Good afternoon, I'm Sonya Pfeiffer. I'm a criminal defense and civil rights attorney based in Toronto, Ontario and Charlotte, North Carolina and co-host of the podcast, Abuse of Power on Audible.
5: And I'm David Rudolph. I'm also the co-host of Abuse of Power with Sonya who is my wife and law partner.
3: Yes, for those who don't know, we are married, and we met while I was a television reporter in Raleigh-Durham, assigned to cover the Peterson case, and you were representing Michael. And Michael is here with us today to talk about this case that really changed all of our lives.
6: Hi, Michael Peterson. I'm in Durham, North Carolina, almost 79 years old, uh, still a felon, and still a writer.
3: Let's jump right in, Michael, because you mentioned two things that I think people know about you already, that you're a writer and that, yes, you are a convicted felon. But before we talk about how you moved to Durham and then met and married Kathleen, you had a whole other life. I don't think a lot of people know about who Michael Peterson was before all of this. Can you talk a little bit about how you grew up?
6: I was born in Tennessee. I think I stayed there maybe four weeks Uh, My father is a military officer. We moved, I don't think I stayed in a particular grade more than one year. It was a very, what can I say, uh, transient childhood, but very fulfilling, and I loved it. I wouldn't trade it for anything because I lived in so many different places.
4: So you went to Duke for undergrad. Uh, I mean, I have to ask, Tar Heels or Devils?
6: Oh, please. <laughs> you do not want a profanity-laden a podcaster.
4: So
3: after university, you enrolled in the military. And by this point, you had also married your first wife, Patty. And you and Patty also lived overseas. Tell me about that part of your life.
6: Uh, well, she was military also. And, uh, oh, God, we lived. Oh, Germany, went to Japan, traveled everywhere together uh, for many, 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 we were married 25 years. And she unfortunately died last year, a massive heart attack. Very, very, very sad day.
4: Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I I did hear about that. And I know David spoke to you. But um, yeah, you and Patty have a special relationship. And then you and Patty had two kids together. Tell me about your two sons. Ah.
6: (laughs) Clayton and Todd. They were both born in Germany.
4: So I want to talk about Germany because as we continue talking today, that's going to resurface uh, as as you know well when it comes to your trial. But in Germany, you and Patty became parents a second time. Um, explain to our listeners who George and Elizabeth Ratliff are and how it came to be that you and Patty were the guardians of their daughters
6: When we first met Liz, oh, she was a teacher, and Patty was a teacher, and they became very, very close friends. And uh, then we met George, and he really was a wonderful guy. George died in 1983. He was on a mission, uh, the invasion of Grenada, and he died. And then Liz was left with two very very small children. And she had a, which nobody knew at the time, a serious medical condition. She was suffering from von Willebrand's disease. And I think that the stress of raising two small children, the loss of her husband, uh, it, was, it was too much for her. And she died. And unknown to me, the military flew up and said, did you know that George had asked you to adopt his children or take care of his children if anything had happened to him? And I said, no, George never talked to me about that. He said, well, it's in the will. And I said, oh, okay. So then, and Liz had the same will. And when she died in 1987, I became the de facto guardians of Margaret and Martha. You
4: and Patty were still together at the time. Is that right?
6: Oh, yes. Yes.
4: What was it like bringing those two young girls into your family?
6: I think it was more of a strain on Patty. And that's, I think, really essentially what broke up our marriage is that Patty, and I don't mean this in any negative way whatsoever, she felt it would be better if others raised Margaret and Martha, one of their relatives. And so I said, no, I'll keep the children. And so I raised them. And then I met Kathleen, and that became another journey.
4: Let's talk about Kathleen. How did you two meet?
6: Uh, Kathleen was, when we came back from Germany with the two girls, uh, they were four and five at the time, I think. And uh, Kathleen and her husband, uh, Fred, were living down the block in another house. And I we met at Margaret's fifth birthday party because Caitlin was the same age. And we just became very close after that, more and more close.
4: And you mentioned Caitlin. Caitlin is Kathleen's daughter from her first marriage, right? Correct. And that's Caitlin Atwater. And, and how did your relationship with Kathleen develop? Uh,
6: well, it's one of these you know, neighborhood stories, and uh, we just saw more of each other and realized that we were very much suited for one another.
4: And over time, your relationship really became something quite special. I mean, something that I think other people would say they envied in a relationship. Would you agree with that?
6: Oh, I think so. I mean, we had a great great relationship. She was, oh, God, she was... Well, sexual and funny and smart. She always used to say that. For God's sake, don't tell anybody your college board scores. I don't want anybody to know I'm living with someone so stupid. Uh, And it was just fun. Every day with her was fun.
4: So David, I want to switch and and talk with you now and move to Kathleen's death. Um, So it was called a crime, but let's start with the death on December 9th, 2001, when Kathleen was found by Michael. And Michael, I'll ask you about that in, in a little bit, but December 9th, 2001, Kathleen is found inside the home she shared with Michael in Forest Hills. Can you talk about what was known at that time, and initially how the discovery of Kathleen's body was treated?
5: I think uh, initially, at least in the press, it was just treated as uh, a prominent author's wife was found uh, dead uh, in their home. Uh, And I don't think initially, at least for the public, uh, there was any uh, connection to it being a crime. That changed relatively quickly.
4: And David, I'm going to ask you to describe the scene a little bit, because as we'll talk about later, what the scene looked like became a a fact that really influenced investigators. So could you describe that? Sure,
5: because it, it was a horrendous looking scene, Uh you know, when you walked in, and I did early on uh, to meet with Michael, uh, we did not meet in a diner eating a pastrami sandwich, uh, as the HBO series indicated. Uh, but when I, when I came in, uh, you know, Michael showed me the scene, and there was blood all over the walls and all over the floor, you know, dried blood. Uh, and, you know, the immediate reaction when you saw that was, Wow something really terrible happened here. But, you know, what I didn't realize when I first saw that, and obviously what the police didn't realize uh, when they first saw it, was that the scalp bleeds incredibly. Uh, It is the most vascularized part of a human body. Uh, And so when somebody is bleeding out from deep wounds in their scalp, there is a massive amount of blood uh, and the massive amount of blood was not indicative of what uh, caused the wounds. It was just indicative of the fact that the wounds bled a lot, that she was conscious for some period of time. uh, And therefore there was blood all over. But when you first looked at it, uh, it looked like a crime scene. I mean, it did. And
4: Michael, you were the first one to see that scene. What do you remember about walking upon... That scene, that uh, the blood scene, Kathleen. There, what do you remember about that?
6: When I came into the house, we'd been at the pool, and then I came into the house. Uh, she had a, a teleconference the next morning, and so I stayed outside with the dogs for a while and came in, and then I went uh, to go you know, in the back staircase, and there she was lying there at the bottom of the stairs, and I, you know, I saw the blood, but I was not a it didn't. I didn't focus so much on the blood as I focused on Kathleen lying on the ground, and that's when I called nine one one and that infamous nine one one call. And uh, you know, I said, "Well, she fell down the stairs." And people asked me afterwards, "Well, why do you think she fell down the stairs?" And I said, well, if you find somebody at the bottom of the stairs, are obvious thought is that she must have fallen, and that 's what what I did think
4: was it surreal though I mean to to come upon that after you had had this evening together by the pool I mean w- w- describe that
6: it was one of those what you know what you know, what's going on you know, what happened uh, there she was or t- talking and alive, and then suddenly I walk in and she's she was dying she was still breathing faintly faintly. And, you know, I'd seen enough death in Vietnam to know that she was dying, and and so I, I you know, I you know put her down and ran to the you know call nine one one, ran to open the door for them, and uh, and then was holding her when EMT came in, and it, it surreal, well, just shocking. I think is the, the better word.
4: And so you just described you coming to Kathleen and holding Kathleen and calling 911. So you yourself, of course, you're you're now covered in blood, right?
6: Yeah, I suppose. I mean, again, the, bl- the blood was not a significant thing, you know, to me. That that was it. I mean, it, 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 what was significant was that Kathleen was dying.
4: David, let's let's talk now about the investigation right? So we, we sort of set that scene. Michael calls 911. Eight minutes later, paramedics show up. And then what?
5: Well, uh, after the paramedics showed up, first of all, there was no uh, protecting the scene. People were walking in and out. Uh, uh, the police showed up. Uh, and Art Holland has said that he walked into the scene and immediately came to the conclusion that this was a crime. You know, he reacted, uh, to the amount of blood at the scene. Uh, and so, uh, we have a classic case of confirmation bias and tunnel vision. He immediately forms his conclusion, uh, that, uh, there's a murder here, that there's a crime here. Who's the only person in the house? Well, it's Michael Peterson. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, assumption in these situations is that the spouse must be the perpetrator, uh, and that's where they went. It was supposed to be an investigation of what happened here, and instead there was an assumption about what happened, and then the focus became Michael is the perpetrator because there was no one else to blame.
4: And I want to break down for listeners uh what you said about tunnel vision and confirmation bias because those are two different things but they they really uh, work hand in hand, right? So tunnel vision, that's what you're talking about. Art Holland comes in, he sees blood in his mind, he thinks this is a homicide so now he is focused only on that homicide everything else is blacked out like when you enter a tunnel. Confirmation bias is then processing all of that information that you find through that lens, through that tunnel vision lens and that is the way the investigation continued, not just with Art Holland, right? But then they have a so-called blood spatter expert, I hate to even use that word, in Dwayne Deaver, who also shows up on the scene,
5: right? Well, he shows up that very night a little bit later on, uh, and he's infected by Art Holland's tunnel vision and Art Holland's confirmation bias. So he's there not to really explore what the blood spatter means, assuming that one can even get any sort of information from that that's worthwhile. He's there to, again, assist Art Holland in proving that this was a murder and that Michael Peterson did it. Uh, and so he, he engages in uh, what he calls pulling strings
4: David, let me ask you to explain that pulling strings and point of origin. I know it's very familiar to you, but explain for our listeners what that means, what it is that Dwayne Deaver was trying to achieve.
5: When you have a a massive blood spatter uh, and you're trying to determine from where that spatter originated, uh, you can take a look at the angles of the uh, spatter on the walls and work backwards from there uh, with various spatter uh, uh, selections and try to find what is called an area of origin. And that's the best that you can do. Uh, the, The science is absolutely clear that, yes, you can do that to find an area of origin, but you can't do that to find a specific point of origin the area of origin is going to be like 12 by 18 inches and the problem was if he had done that properly the area of origin would have been the walls and the and the steps well that wouldn't have helped art holland's case at all so instead what he had to do is find what he called points of origin and that was the first step in in essence framing michael peterson For this murder.
4: And when we talk about origin, a point of origin or an area of origin, what you're talking about is impact. If it were a fall, at what point on the stair did her head hit? At what place on the wall? That's what you're talking about, right?
5: Exactly. Where did the blood start to flow?
4: And you mentioned Art Holland coming back with a search warrant. That's another thing, falling right into his tunnel vision. And this is, is where he, he went out and he got a search warrant right away, that evening, that very evening, right?
5: Oh, within, within an hour, within less than an hour.
4: That's where he was headed. So let's talk about the injuries, David, because of course there was an autopsy and the autopsy found that this was blunt force trauma.
5: Actually not. The autopsy initially, uh, what Deborah Radish found initially was that the cause of death was a loss of blood, exsanguination. And then we found out later from going through the file Uh, the chief medical examiner came in and essentially told her, no, uh, you need to put on the autopsy that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. That was not the cause of death. We all agree that what caused Kathleen's death was the loss of blood. So why all of a sudden do we have blunt force trauma as the cause of death? That is a question that I don't think has ever been satisfactorily answered.
4: Well, and you know, you talk about tunnel vision, you talk about it infecting other people. This is yet another example. So initially, Deborah Radish says cause of death is blood loss. Then she later changes it to blunt force trauma. But there were problems with that being the cause of death, right? Because blunt force trauma usually has some well-known associated conditions, right? Like subdural hematoma, edema. None of that existed here.
5: Kathleen didn't have any of the injuries that are normally associated with blunt force trauma. She had no injuries to her brain. There was no subdural. There were no contusions to the brain. There were no fractures on her arms. Uh, There was nothing that was consistent with blunt force trauma. So when you look at that, you say to yourself, okay, how is that possible? How is it possible that none of the things that I know as a lawyer are normally associated with blunt force trauma uh, are there? And so I say, okay, well, let's take a look at all the autopsies going back 10 years and see if we can find even one other, even one other which had none of those injuries. And so that's what we did. And in fact, there was not a single other blunt force trauma death that didn't have at least one and often several of those kinds of injuries. Kathleen Peterson was the only case in the previous 10 years where they claimed blunt force trauma was the cause of death, but there were none of those associated injuries.
4: And we'll talk about the trial in a little bit, but back to the investigation. Michael, do you remember talking to investigators that night on December 9th, 2001?
6: Oh, yes. I mean, right away, uh, you know, they came in and my son Todd arrived with his girlfriend. They been at a party. They separated everybody. And it was Todd who instantly, you know, simply because of that and also the way that they were just acting, he picked up right away. He said, Dad, they're trying to get you. And it, it, that didn't make any sense to me. I, number one, I was in shock. And two, like, well, why? So he called my brother, who was an attorney in Reno, and uh, for which later it was like, oh, we lawyered up. Uh, but my brother, Bill, talked to Holland and said, do not question Michael Peterson. I would have been happy to answer anything. I, I, I would have cooperated. I saw no reason why not to. And, and Holland kept trying to do that, put his arm around me. And, and Todd said, no, dad, no, no, don't talk. And that just snap me out of it. And I realized, oh yeah, they really are definitely uh, out to get me.
0: get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber lives like a There Available wherever you'll get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
4: So let's talk about your arrest now because it wasn't immediate. I mean, this was December 9th, 2001, but sounds like you were well aware that eyes were on you. Tell me about when you got arrested. What happened?
6: David wanted me to go to Charlotte or or at least get out of Durham because he knew the arrest was coming. But all I could think of was the Ray Carruth case in which he had fled, as a matter of fact. I said, no, if they're going to arrest me, they're going to arrest me and I'll I'll surrender if, if this is what they want. So I made the decision that I would go to the courthouse and surrender uh, for that. And and I was uh, put in jail (laughs) for two weeks.
4: David, what do you remember about that? Because by now you were hired, right?
5: I I was hired relatively early on, before the case even went to a grand jury. What I was originally talking to Michael about was the fact that I was afraid that the police were going to just swoop in before we had a chance to arrange a surrender, because surrenders get arranged. I was able to reach the district attorney's office. Uh, we were able to arrange a time for Michael to to show up uh, and surrender himself. In part, the reason to do that is because it helps to set up the bail situation. And eventually, we were able to get a judge to set a bond for Michael that Michael could make, which is an enormously helpful thing. If your client is in, it makes the case much more difficult to defend.
4: So December 20th, 2001 is when Michael was charged uh, with first degree murder and then released in January. So now is January, 2002. The trial is a little more than a year later in 2003. David, can you talk about the two theories at trial? What was the state's case, what was your case?
5: Our case was sort of uh, set from the very beginning when Michael uh, said she's fallen down the stairs because that was the logical conclusion. Everything that Michael told me from the first day that I met him always checked out. Uh, and so, yeah, I, go, I would go and talk with Michael and he says, well, you know, we were watching a movie, America's Sweethearts, and we get the receipt from Blockbuster, which shows that he rented that movie that day. He says, well, Todd and his, uh, and his friend, the doctor, stopped by the house around 10 o'clock on their way to a party. So I called the doctor, and she confirms everything was exactly normal. They were watching a movie. Everything was absolutely normal. Michael was normal. Kathleen was normal. There was no tension. Uh, You know, Michael tells me that he had a wonderful relationship with Kathleen. We interview all of their friends. Every single one of them confirms that. So literally every fact that Michael told me, I was able to confirm. So for me, that was the end of the matter. It was, okay, she fell down the stairs. And for me, it was then a question of how do we explain all the blood to a jury, because that was the big problem. The police, of course, had their own theory, and that was that Michael somehow beat her to death, although they didn't have a murder weapon uh, for probably a year. Uh, So their theory had, had its problems. Of course, our problem was the amount of blood and the spread of the blood over the walls.
4: So let's talk about the state's case. Let's first start with Dwayne Deaver, because I think it's fair to say that Deaver was the linchpin for the state. Would you agree with that?
5: No doubt about it. Uh, I mean, Deaver was the person who, he was the only person who could put a weapon in Michael's hand uh, as explaining the injuries and the blood. That's what he was there for. And indeed, he was the person who established that it was first degree because his opinion was that there was some period of time between the first blows and the what he described as the second blows. So that's where the state argued the premeditation occurred. Uh, so Deaver was responsible for the overall theory uh, and for the specific theory regarding first degree. He was. He was. He was their case, out to create what he called experiments, which weren't experiments at all. They were attempts to recreate certain facts that he saw in the scene uh, in a way that would implicate Michael. They were almost cartoonish when you first looked at them, but they videotaped these, and the police. Uh, Uh, obviously relied on them. The DA relied on them, and the DA showed them at trial, uh, which was sort of a surprise to me because I found them to be almost laughable, Uh, but, but apparently the jury didn't.
4: Well, and when you say laughable, I mean, look, I know this is not a laughing matter, but seriously, he had like a foam skull, and he put a sponge on top of the skull and climbed up a ladder and put like the skull up top and then dropped it after putting some red stuff on the sponge to see what would happen, right?
5: Exactly. Exactly. And of course, that that experiment didn't go well for him uh, because it didn't prove what he wanted it to prove. Uh, His big success, his huge success, was, quote, proving that the blood spatter on the inside of Michael's uh, shorts uh, came from a blow to the head, and and he spent hours trying to create that uh, uh, situation. And when he was finally able to, after multiple attempts, you see his assistant in the background doing a little, you know, victory dance like she scored a touchdown in a football game. And and that was, you know, the tip off to me that this was all about proving a certain thing, not about finding out what happened.
4: So We can call that junk science, no doubt.
5: Absolutely.
4: There was also Deborah Radish. Uh, we talked about what she found in the autopsy, and you presented her at trial with volume upon volume upon volume of the autopsies from blunt force trauma deaths over the previous 10 years, none of which looked anything like Kathleen. So, I think those are sort of the, let's call them the heavyweights, the state expert types. But there were other critical pieces of evidence that came into the trial. That were entirely unfair, as later acknowledged by the judge. And let's start with Germany. So, Michael, earlier we talked about Elizabeth Ratliff and George Ratliff, and you mentioned that Elizabeth passed away. One thing I have come to just get my hairs up about is every time someone says Elizabeth Ratliff was found at the bottom of the staircase, the fact of the matter is that's not quite true. I was a reporter, I went to Germany, I saw that, uh, condo or that little home, you walk in the door, there's a little step up and then there's a staircase and she was found like on that little step up. So she could have been walking in the door and fall down. She, I mean, there was, there was no evidence that she fell down the stairs, but yet you did have this death in Germany, a woman that you knew whose children you were now raising. And she was someone who I believe you were one of the first people to see upon her death. Is that right?
6: Uh, her nanny was the first one. She'd been gone for the weekend and came back to the house and opened the door and found Liz there. And uh, she immediately ran over to our house. We live 100, 200 yards away. Uh, I was asleep. Patty was getting up because Patty and Liz were going to go to school together drive together. So Patty uh, was, you know, woke me up and said something happened to Liz. So Patty ran over first. And then I was maybe three or four minutes later, I came on the scene.
4: And let's talk about the scene. The fact that there was no blood The fact that there was no evidence of an intruder. This was not a scene at all like the scene where Kathleen was found. Fair?
6: No, fair. Right. And what had happened uh, right away was that Barbara, uh, who was the nanny, called uh, German 911. And the German police immediately came along with a medical doctor. And the, the German doctor did a spinal tap and the German doctor said, this woman had a stroke. And then the body was brought to Frankfurt General Medical the Center and the autopsy was done on Liz and the pathologist there said that she had had a stroke. So at the time, and and because Liz had been complaining for days, and even called her mother and said, "This I'm having the worst headaches I've had in my life." Uh, So when it was said that she had a stroke, everyone accepted. Well, of course she had a stroke, Uh, and that's what I and everybody believed at the time.
4: And and the prosecution finds out about this now. First of all, David, you were aware of this when you started representing Michael. This this didn't get thrown on you by either the media or the prosecution you were well aware of this when before Michael's trial right
5: you know it it was it was always stroke but ron jaret uh, who was a former police officer as soon as he learned that she her body had been found where it was he said the police are going to try to use this the DA is going to try to use this and so Literally within the first few months of us being involved, Ron and I flew to Germany uh, and we investigated it. We spoke with the prosecutor. We spoke with the doctor. We spoke with the Army CID agent. We got his report. We looked through the German files. Everyone agreed.
4: So so the first issue is that yes, the state learned about this. Yes, the state tried to get in and they did get it in at trial. And you were therefore forced to rebut all of this evidence. Let's talk about those witnesses that the state brought forth. First of all, who were they and how were they treated by the prosecution when they showed up in Durham, David?
5: Well, uh, they, they consisted, I believe of three women, uh, one of whom, Barbara Magnino, was the nanny uh, who never, ever raised anything about uh, Liz's death being suspicious. But now, of course, in retrospect, uh, given Kathleen's death, uh, she's convinced that there must have been something going on, and she now remembers uh, all this blood all over. And then there was another uh, witness, Mary Beth Burner, I think was her name, uh, and she came in. She had initially given a statement to Art Holland, which was didn't even mention Michael when she talked about the death of, of, of Liz. Didn't even mention him. Now she comes in, and she's had what, as she calls it, flashbacks, uh, <clears throat> where she sees blood all over, and Michael's acting suspicious, and Michael calls it a stroke before the doctor gets there,
6: uh, and, and all of this nonsense. May I inter- interrupt for just one thing on that, on the witnesses? Those were friends of mine and Patty's. And to this day, uh, I do not understand why they did that. I mean, they just totally made up that blood stuff. And it was one of the more heartbreaking things to Patty that her friends had said that uh, out of nowhere. And, and this was 20 years later. And it was all false.
4: So in addition to the evidence the state brought in about Elizabeth Ratliff, uh, including much of the false evidence they brought in, another piece of the state's case that I think uh, was really prejudicial and has been acknowledged as such was your bisexuality, Michael, and these emails that were found. They said it countered your argument that he had a perfect relationship with Kathleen, right? Like that was the, the, the legal basis for getting it in.
5: That was the that was the legal basis for getting it in, according to the judge. But by the time Freda Black got up in her closing argument, there was nothing about that. It was all about how, you know, what Michael was doing was pure tea filth uh, and uh, and how uh, he was a pervert uh, and, that was the argument, and that's really why they put it in.
4: Right. And, and that's what you do, right, when your, your other evidence is weak. So let's talk about your case, though, because you also put on a case. Just quickly run through for me who you put on and why, what your goal was, putting on a defense case.
5: Sure. Well, our defense was to counter the expert evidence. Uh, and so we had uh, we had two blood spatter crime scene people, Henry Lee uh, and his associate, uh, who contradicted uh, Dwayne Deaver's testimony. And we had a biomechanical expert uh, who uh, was an expert in head injuries, uh, and he testified about how this could have happened. And indeed, we had an animation to show how this could have happened, because it was difficult to picture how the falls took place without having seen it. Uh, And so that's what we did. and, And I thought it was a very persuasive animation to explain the injuries on Kathleen's head.
4: So again, those injuries, that was problematic for the state, as well as the fact that they didn't have a murder weapon until, as you put it, maybe a year later, which they determined to be a blow poke, which by the way, they didn't even have to show the jury at the beginning of the trial, right?
5: Right. They, they came in with the, with the Candace's blow poke and said, see This is what Michael had in his house. Uh, It's mysteriously missing. uh, And uh, it was always there before, according to Candace. uh, And now it's missing. And this must be the murder weapon because it's light and it's stiff and it wouldn't uh, crack her skull or cause brain injuries. But it would cause the kind of uh, injuries to the scalp that she had. That was Deborah Radish's testimony, which was completely false, as we proved later on when we were able to actually find the blow poke in a corner where the police had put it, not recognizing that it was even relevant at the time.
4: You mentioned Candace, and Michael, you had mentioned Candace as well. Candace Zamparini was Kathleen's sister. She became a very important person in this case in terms of, uh, I would say, a player for the prosecution. Would that be a good way to characterize her Yes. What was your relationship with Candace before, Michael?
6: There was a lot of jealousy between the sisters. Uh, and uh, I can, many times we, they came to visit us and we'd go up to visit them. I can remember a couple of times they would be fighting and uh, <laughs> her husband and I would just sort of roll our eyes and think, oh my God. Um, but it was a good relationship. And, and when uh, Kathleen died, she was right there. She took over everything. Arranged funeral, cemetery plot, uh, everything. Um, and then it became very bad because the police convinced her that I had killed Kathleen. And I understood that. why Then her, her, her sentiments changed. And she really hated me. In the same sense, if somebody had come to me and said, the police had said, oh, this person killed your brother. Well, I would have hated that person. No question about that.
3: Michael, you said the police convinced Candace that you killed Kathleen, but it was actually the prosecutors and not just Candace, but also Caitlin, Kathleen's daughter. What the prosecutors did was flat out wrong. It was improper. I mean, the prosecution essentially formed Team State of North Carolina using Kathleen's own kin.
5: Yeah. So so initially, uh, Candace was very supportive of Michael, as was Caitlin. Both of them said to me, there's no way that Michael would have done this. No way. Indeed, uh, Caitlin was the family spokesperson when Michael was first let out of jail. uh, And she said that to the media. Uh, So what changed? Uh, What changed was uh, the police and prosecutors brought them in. Uh, showed them the photographs, and had uh, Deborah Radish explain to them that these were clearly uh, the result of an attack, a homicidal attack. Uh, And that changed everything.
3: So let's go back to the trial. The state puts on their case, you put on your case, they rebut, you rebut, right. And then the jury goes out and they deliberate for a week. So Michael, I want to talk about when the jury returned and what it was like for you when you heard the verdict.
6: Well... Again, it had been days and days that they were out, and we had to stay in the courtroom. So Margaret and Martha and uh, Todd and and Clayton, we were all there together. And I don't think I'm going to be convicted. Uh, I I just don't think it's going to happen. And, of course, the next day when they came in, I stood up and they said guilty. It was was shock. It it really was. Uh, But, you know, it's not the first shock I've had in my life. And so, and I immediately thought of my children. I thought, oh, 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 God, what this does to them! After all that they've suffered and lost, you know. So I turned to them and I said, It's okay. It's okay. Uh, It wasn't. (laughs) Later, when I was locked up in a cell in the basement, I thought, Oh my God, what happened? You know, I've lost my family, I've lost my... Everything, everything. And then it really hit. At the time, it was like just getting the blow. Guilty.
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward
0: advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
4: And let's talk about prison. I mean... You went from, um, you know, that blow in the courtroom and the shock and trying to process with your family to then immediately being taken to prison. What was that experience like?
6: Prison was... I think for me, a little different in, in the fact that I was really famous. Everybody had watched this. Uh, even in prison, they were watching court TV and the, the news. So everybody knew who I was when I got there. And the fact that I was old, shit, what about 68 or something?
5: No, you were 50. You were 58.
6: 58, 58, right, felt like 68. I taught GED uh, for a couple of years, earning a dollar a day, and got 75 guys through GEDs. I was doing everything I could to stay busy and keep my mind off the, the tragedy of losing, you know, my children and everything. So... Again, life, you know, whether it's war or anything, it's it's pretty much what you make of it. And I had decided right away, well, okay, this is it. I'll just make the best of it. And so I did.
4: And and meantime, on the outside, there's the appeal process going on. David, can you uh, just briefly walk us through uh, direct appeal, post-conviction, what happened?
5: Yeah, well, on the direct appeal, we were pretty confident because... Uh, Number one, they had introduced evidence pursuant to a search warrant, which was completely uh, insufficient. Uh, Freda Black had made arguments in closing that were completely improper. So we were optimistic uh, that the verdict was going to be reversed. And then they decided, well, all of that was just harmless error. That, That wouldn't have affected the verdict. And then what happened was that Dwayne Deaver was exposed as a fraud, not in this case, but in the Greg Taylor case. Uh, And once that happened, then I saw an avenue for a post-conviction petition that would succeed because Dwayne Deaver was in fact the linchpin of the case. And so that's where we went.
4: And so when you say Dwayne Deaver was exposed to be a fraud, I mean, let's put a fine point on that, right? He, it was more than being a fraud. I mean, he was not passing confirmatory reports on. It was preliminary reports. He was doing these made-up experiments. I mean, explain what you mean by that.
5: Well, yeah, I was being too kind. He was a liar. Uh, he, was, he was someone who was hiding exculpatory evidence. Uh, He was, in essence, setting up people uh, by his lab results uh, in case after case after case to the extent that the state of North Carolina had to hire two former FBI agents to come in and audit the lab. And as a result of that, they shut down the blood spatter uh, division of the lab because it was rife with, with inaccuracies. Uh, And so once we had all of that, uh, we were able to go back. And, and, you know, Michael had from the start was in favor of the documentary being made because he felt like it would um, level the playing field. I don't mean to speak for you, Michael, but, uh, you know, I think that was your your thought was that, hey, having these these uh, award winning um, Academy Award winning documentarians there would keep things a little bit more honest We were able to get all the clips uh, from the French filmmakers of Deaver's testimony. And that had a very visceral effect, I think, on the judge. Because it's one thing to read it in a transcript. It's quite another thing to watch this guy on the witness stand where you're the judge and he's lying to you and to the jury. And that was extremely powerful. So I think, in fact, Michael's instinct of having those filmmakers there is what ultimately enabled us to get him out.
4: And ultimately, what your motion was, your motion for a new trial was based on the fact that there had been false and misleading testimony, fabricated evidence, and Michael deserved a new trial.
5: Exactly. Exactly right.
4: What's so interesting about that is a lot of times in, in cases of wrongful convictions, we look to the thing that made a difference, right? It was DNA testing. It was a, a tape that turned up and someone saw the, the the real perpetrator or someone finally confessed. And here, what I, I hear both of you saying is it was the documentary. So Hudson's ruling, Mike, what was that like? What was it like to hear him say, you get a new trial? What was that like?
6: Oh it's like being resurrected almost i'm not sure how Lazarus felt but you know when you're gone and have lost everything and suddenly someone returns your life to you and there were my children in court and everyone was there and oh my god it was it was just it wasn't vindication so much as it was just getting life back
4: and at the time i mean everyone was ready to dismiss the charges i think if i remember right judge hudson was ready to do it frankly i think the da was but then in step candace Zamperini and her sister what what happened then david
5: everyone was was done with this case you know and and everybody realized that the trial hadn't been fair that this Germany stuff should have never come in, that was a farce, that the sexuality stuff should have never come in. Uh, They now didn't have the blood spatter expert anymore. I mean, how were they going to proceed? They they had no evidence at that point. So I think Judge Hudson fully expected the the prosecutor to say, we don't have enough to proceed. Uh, I think the DA was hoping to say that. uh, But Candace and Laurie, the two sisters, were adamant that they objected to that. But the DA was not willing to do the right thing over the objections of these two women. And when you watch Candace's uh, venom at, at the ultimate uh, offered he, plea hearing, uh, I guess you can sort of understand why, because she was she was beyond beyond the pale in, in how venomous she was.
4: Yeah. So after the new trial is granted, of course the state appealed and lost their appeal. And, and oftentimes what happens is then everything's dismissed. That didn't happen here. You mentioned the Alford plea. Michael, talk to me a little bit about why you were okay with an Alford plea and how it was explained
6: to you. Well, when I got out of prison, I believe I was 68 at the time, uh, and I wore an ankle bracelet for God, two years. So I lived with this for the longest time. I'm getting older and older. So when it finally came, when David worked out this Alfred plea, and again, I wasn't convinced that a jury would find me not guilty again. I mean, you know, burned once, you're a little leery the second time. I was with my children. I had, you know, a life. I was writing. Everything was good. Did I want to risk that? I did not want to go through that for myself, or especially for my children, and then to bring my grandchildren into the hell. We'd still be fighting this thing. So no, just just end it,
4: David. Just for the listeners, just break down an alpha plea. Why it exists? What it means?
5: Yeah. Well,
6: uh, what it is it
5: is a way of resolving a case without the defendant admitting to the essential facts. So it's it's essentially a mechanism uh, where everybody can declare victory or defeat equally, uh, and the case just ends. And Michael was adamant about two things. Number one was that he would never say that he had killed Kathleen, absolutely would never say anything close to that. And number two, he would not go back into incarceration, even for 10 minutes. In other words, he had to be released and the case had to be over right then and there. He wasn't going to go back to the jail to be processed. Those were my marching orders. Uh, and and once the prosecution agreed to both of those things, as I said to Michael, okay, so if we go back to trial and you're found not guilty, is that going to change anybody's mind who's already decided you're guilty? No. No. If you take an offered plea, is that going to convince anybody who believes you're innocent that you're guilty? No. So there was no practical reason to go back to trial. Nothing would change at that point. And as Michael said, he was older, he had grandchildren, and it was time to put this to rest.
4: And so, Michael, what have you been doing with your life since finally putting this to
6: rest? I've been writing, I've written, God, one, two, three, four books, five books, Uh, you know, since then, since I got out. I've uh, traveled and plan to do more of it and plan to continue writing. I told my children over and over, hey, don't hate. That's just the most useless, destructive emotion that you can have. So just get over it. You know, live the life that you can now. I mean, you got today, so uh, live today, and that's you know what I've been doing.
4: What about a you know a closing argument for listeners here? What what do you want to say to folks, Michael, about your experience, about your case? Can they learn from it? What what would you want to leave people
6: with? I, I, I think what, what it to me boils down to is a matter of having an open mind. You know, back in the old days, uh, You know, if if, if the police had arrested somebody or shot somebody, well, they were right. Of course, you know, know, we just believed that then. Uh, And I probably did myself as a rich white guy. We don't believe that anymore. Times have changed. What you believe isn't necessarily true. Uh, What you've been told isn't necessarily true. You need to think. And people aren't really comfortable with that. They like the, oh, no, it's got to be this way or that way uh this kirkegaardian either or well it really isn't that it's all sort of gray so think and uh keep an open mind
4: and david what about you you know i mean on abuse of power our podcast we talk about a lot of the issues that were at play In this case, uh, all sorts of misconduct, junk science, tunnel vision, confirmation bias—all of that. What in Michael's case, in this experience, what's the what's the word? What's the thought you want to leave with listeners?
5: What Michael's case illustrates is how fundamentally flawed the criminal justice system is, uh, and how someone like Michael, uh, who never had done anything criminal in his life could suddenly find himself convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison uh, based on the testimony of Dwayne Deaver uh, is a wake-up call. Uh, and and so what I've tried to do since then is to broaden my uh, message, you know, not just to talk to juries in, in particular cases, but through the podcast, uh, through a book I've just written, uh, to, to try to educate people about the flaws in the system. And as Michael said, you need to keep an open mind, uh, because uh, things are not always as they seem, uh, and indeed, there's lots and lots of gray in the world and in the criminal justice system.
3: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your guest host, Sonia Pfeiffer. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis. The senior producer for this episode is Jackie Polly, and our producers are Lila Robinson and Jeff Clyburn. Our editor is Roxandra Guidi. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. You can find the podcast I make with David, Abuse of Power, on Audible that's at Audible UK. Follow the show on Twitter at Abuse of Power Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at Sonia Pfeiffer and on Twitter at Pfeiffer Sonia. David is on both platforms as David S. Rudolph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts, in association with Signal Company No. 1.
2: Next week on the guest-hosted episode of Wrongful Conviction, Pulitzer Prize finalist and co-host of the podcast Ear Hustle, Erlon Woods, my friend Erlon Woods, is going to talk to an exoneree that he met while still serving time at San Quentin Prison. Erlon will talk with Caramont Conley about the wild twists and turns of the California justice system and their shared experience of life behind bars. This is a must-listen episode. Tune in next week, it's going to be Monday, in the Wrongful Conviction podcast feed. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going
0: on a road trip.